Well, welcome to episode 69 of The Professor and the Hack. Thanks for staying with us uh, for this long time. If you've been here from the start, and welcome. If you're just starting on The Hack, I'm Hugh Rimmington, and with me is uh, PVO, the professor, uh, national political editor for the 10 Network, among many other hats. PVO, welcome. G'day. How are you, Hugh? Well, look, I'm, I'm all right. I'm all right. Mm. But I, I had a, a little shock today when um, I realised that the thing that I'd been hanging all my hopes on uh, may have a little fly in the ointment. And if I can explain all this, I don't know if you can hang fly in an ointment, it's, and your hopes, it's a very mixed metaphor. But uh, AstraZeneca, this is the Oxford University vaccine mm. trial, uh, within days of Scott Morrison saying, well, we've bought into it, not merely... Uh, backing it, but putting money behind it and signing up a deal to produce it. Uh, They've paused the human trials because of an adverse reaction. And one of the people involved has been a statement from AstraZeneca, the drug company. Uh, I suppose it shows that no vaccine is here until it's here. Uh, How serious an issue do you think that is? Uh, look, I, I don't think it's as serious an issue as a lot of people might be concerned, which is not to downplay it. I mean, let's be very clear about this. It is absolutely interesting. It will understandably concern a lot of people, Hugh, by the sounds of it, yourself included. We've seen their share price drop overnight, unsurprisingly, because of this news with concerns that it might create difficulties around the delivery or the timing of the vaccine. And it certainly does look bad uh, as an accidental unintended consequence for Scott Morrison because he's you know throwing the best part of a billion dollars if not more behind uh, us buying this and now it looks like at a superficial level there might be a problem with it so there's a bit of egg on his face there it's a classic case of course where you can't win either way because he was being criticized for coming late to the party with getting a deal done with companies like AstraZeneca now that he's got a deal done within days as you say there are these issues raised but and this is probably the most important point. Let's not get ahead of ourselves on how concerning this is. Firstly, it's completely understandable and fairly standard practice, frankly, that there's an adverse reaction uh, from one of the participants during the course of the trial. We don't even yet know if the adverse reaction is necessarily to the trial vaccine itself, but out of an abundance of caution, as is standard practice, they need to stop uh, with the further treatments of people assess what has caused this and how serious it is. Uh, Nick Coatesworth, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, has suggested already that his understanding is that it looks like it's a serious adverse reaction, but they're now waiting to find out if that is an adverse reaction to the vaccine or something else. And and this should probably be the thing that gives people the most comfort to not be too concerned about it. Uh, It's one person out of roughly 50,000 who have tried this at this point in time. And uh, my understanding is that this is absolutely what always happens in some form during these trials over an extended period of time. The issue is what happens next. Does it become something that is actually something that we should all worry about? Or is this a case of people's concerns or even the media getting ahead of themselves uh, in their concerns and worries at this point in time? So it's a bit of a wait and see. The only thing that we know with certainty at this point in time is that yes, this will to some extent, even if all turns out okay, have to, by necessity, slightly, if not more than slightly, slow down the process of getting towards the vaccine. But again, my understanding is that in their modelling of when and how they expect this to come out, uh, and it's an accelerated process, we all know that with the vaccine, nonetheless, in the modelling that has already been out and about around timing, it factored in assumed setbacks like this because they are that common 
when doing a, via, a, a vaccine trial process. So a bit of perspective, I think, is important just so that we don't freak out too much about it. Yes, I guess it's true that uh, if you take any sample of uh, 50,000 adults uh, over a period of some months, someone's going to get sick and perhaps seriously sick in that time. As you say, it will come down to is it linked to the vaccine or is it perhaps unlinked to the vaccine? And I totally take your point that, that, we, that we give Morrison a hard time for, for not climbing in and backing everything and putting money and doing all this stuff the minute that he does it and there's a problem, then that's all on, hit, on him. I mean, it is, it is bad timing for him, obviously, uh, you know, because it's literally happened days after he makes the announcement rather than on the other side. But I wonder what he would have done politically if he would have slowed it down or made less of the announcement, one assumes, at least from a marketing perspective. But you know, the, the, the really interesting thing for me on this is let's assume for a moment, and it is assumption, that what ultimately happens is that this was a severe adverse reaction that is problematic for one in 50,000 people who get the vaccine. Now, when you expand the mass of that out, that's just an interesting proposition. What does that mean for how they then would have to go about, you know, can they fix it firstly in the way that they adjust the vaccine? If they can fix it, then some of the production values are instantly set back significantly. If they can't fix it, then suddenly, you know, the anti-vaxxers, if I could put it that way, not to mention other people, would sit there and go, well, do I really want to take a one in 50,000 risk? which I might be able to mitigate slightly further based on age or other particular preconditions that this person may or may not have. It becomes a game of maths. Uh, and it's possible that it's important enough to proceed with the vaccine anyway, but it's also possible, even at a one in 50,000 rate, that that becomes a junk vaccine that they have to throw away because that's just an unacceptable rate in the context of what they're looking to roll out. So a lot of uh, hoops to be jumped through yet before we know how serious or not this, this might end up being. Yeah, it always ringing in my ears is uh, the interview I did with uh, Professor uh, Dennis Liotta, who uh, from Emory University in the United States, who was considered largely the hero who uh, helped make uh, HIV a chronic uh, disease rather than a death sentence for the treatment mm. he came up with for HIV, making the point there's never been a vaccine for HIV. Uh, he was cautious that there ever would be a vaccine for the coronavirus, um, given past history and the difficulties in fighting these things. So the assumption that the vaccines are just going to roll up over the hill in reasonably short order, um, you know, and, and not, have not been backed by everyone who is serious in this area of science. So, look, we'll wait and see what that is. But against the background of that, we're still seeing these awkward numbers. Victoria has gone up three days in a row again on new cases. The death toll is still in double figures as we speak uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, they've gone up uh, to their new caseload is up 3,000 plus in the course of this last week, they've applied new restrictions. So there is this, this endless levering tension that goes between, come on, let's just get back on with normal life. And, and this reminder from the virus that it's not done yet. And it's, it, you know, it is still out there and it's still spreading. Um, mm. The politics of it have seen the, the prime minister be much more open in his condemnation of uh, Dan Andrews, or at least, harsher in his criticism, I suppose, is fairer. Um, where do you think that's landing at the moment? I see both of them have had their handling of it on the essential poll. Both the public is, is less enamoured with both Scott Morrison and Dan Andrews' handling of this, despite the different positions. Well, I think it's really interesting to see how the guts of bipartisanship and we're all in this together has completely fallen out of their relationship now. I mean, it started with proxy wars, didn't it? Uh, with Scott Morrison, I would argue, deploying ministers, or at least if not deploying them, 
letting them run free and free range with their criticisms of Dan Andrews. Josh Frydenberg at the absolute front of that, of course, as Deputy Liberal Leader, he has more rights, I guess, to do so than others. He's also a Victorian. He's also the Treasurer. But, you know, Morrison could clamp down on that or could have clamped down on it some time ago. He didn't. Um, Dan Andrews has become pointed in his responses to those. He used to always say, well, I don't care about what others think. I talk directly to the Prime Minister. That rhetoric has given way because they've now had direct attacks almost on each other and each other's comments. And it's, it's veiled to some extent, but it's almost moving past the point of even being veiled, frankly. Uh, their relationship, as far as I'm concerned, for all intents and purposes, now appears utterly, utterly toxic to me. Uh, and I know that there is backgrounding going on of journalists on both sides, Hugh. The, you know, this, this is an issue that is now happening on both sides. Uh, and they both feel under siege. I think Andrews probably feels it more so because he's the one directly there in Victoria fighting this second wave. But, you know, the criticism is just so powerful now. And how they even can pretend that they're going to work together at, at future points is hard for me to understand. The thing that I'm interested to see from here, just as a curiosity factor, I haven't seen any polling on what Victorians think now about Dan Andrews in the wake of the stage four lockdowns, the fighting of the virus. You know, you go on social media and the I stand with Dan movement is very powerful on Twitter, but then, you know, you, you have anecdotal word of mouth and people seem very angry who I've talked to about the job he's doing. So I don't know where the great majority, uh, where we can try to get a sense of what they think out of Victoria actually think. Do they get in behind him? Because he's driven the numbers down, even though it's been a hard stage four lockdown and at least he's acted decisively and they back their premier in almost as a sort of state-based loyalty to some extent. Or is there an incredible frustration because of the economic damage, the sense that there were uh, issues of failure within the apparatus of Victorian health and that Dan Andrews has become somewhat uh, autocratic in style and reasonableness. I don't know. I actually don't know. That's why I'd love to see the numbers. Sure. So if I can help with that, a central poll put out some numbers this week in which um, it showed that uh, if you went back to April, May, uh, well, really May, I think, for Scott Morrison, um, around about that time, both Morrison and uh, this was the great saving of Morrison in terms of his poll numbers. But in the question of who's ha- is he handling, well, do you approve of the way the prime minister is handling the COVID crisis? The question was also put about state premiers and, and their leaders. Um, the, it, the question was actually not personalised to the prime minister and the premier, but rather to the government. Uh, the, the, the responses were positive if you went back to uh, May in the order of 70% plus for both the Victorian government and the federal government, that has dwindled away now so that it's 59% at the federal level and just 50% uh, for uh, the Andrews government. So there's definitely been uh, a loss. Both of them are suffering a loss as people's impatience, I guess, grows. And particularly Mm. Victoria, it's a difficult time. So, you know, the shine has come off. People are presumably on the basis of that feeling frustrating, frustrated and, and willing to express those frustrations. But it's not as if one has all the virtue and the other has all the fault. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. I mean, and then, of course, you see how it plays out in the aftermath. And that becomes really interesting as well, because, you know, in the midst of the pandemic, uh, attitudes can be quite different to, to if the recovery is brutal uh, or if, you know, we pick over the 
the carcass of, of occurrences that, have, that we've seen. And, and then there is wisdom in hindsight. All of these things are yet to play out for both leaders, frankly. Uh, and, and then, of course, you've got the issue of what they face at the state or the federal level. You know, I mean, whatever you think of Dan Andrews, and, and, and I think he's had a lot of missteps, I have to say, albeit in very trying times. And I have had a real issue with a lot of the things he's done from a sort of liberty perspective and from an autocratic perspective. But having said all of that, the opposition in Victoria, from what I can tell, as well as the organisational Liberal Party, some of the exposés there, looks like one of the bigger jokes around the entire nation at the moment when it comes to political oppositions. I mean, that Tim Smith guy is a rolled gold fool uh, and he's touted as the next Liberal leader there if Michael O'Brien doesn't do well. You know, that, that opposition truly is an embarrassment to themselves, much less to their party, much less to the state. But so, is that any uh, surprise, that, given what we now know of... Is that a surprise, given what, we, what we've, we've been learning in recent weeks about, you know, the internal workings, these, these Marcus Bastian and so on, all these, these characters play a set of games inside the Victorian Liberal Party. You know, that kind of machinery never spits up good quality product. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. And, and look, and, and that's been a labour issue for a long time in different... Um, organisational jurisdictions as well, hasn't it? Because of that sort of factional control. It, it, it's had its moments where it's done good, but it's really based on the individuals that are running the show, whether they're acting virtuously or whether they're just simply trying to retain control. And it looks like in the Victorian Liberal Party, it certainly errs on the side of, of bad outcomes, not good outcomes. One thing we haven't discussed, I'll touch on it just briefly. Dan Andrews has, is sending health officials off to New South Wales to have a look at contract tracing in New South Wales. The gold standard, as the Prime Minister calls it, um, is that a, a concession that, you know, that it's, it's not been good enough in Victoria? Look, yes, it is. Uh, I, I've written about this uh, in The Australian and I actually wrote about it with the problems that Victoria had around its, and we've talked about it in this podcast, the problems that Victoria has had in its public health structuring and how centralised it is with its public health units and the difficulty that that poses for contact tracing. And New South Wales, frankly, it is the gold standard on this because its structuring has been better. But, Hugh, and this is the important point for me, yes, he should have probably done this a lot earlier, frankly, uh, and it, but at least he's doing it now. And yes, New South Wales, he's got a lot that he can learn from them when it comes to contact tracing. But I think New South Wales is not the font of all wisdom when it comes to battling the coronavirus. The risk in New South Wales is, is it's, it's interesting. In Victoria, the problem was contact tracing and its centralised health bureaucracy, which made it very slow moving as a dinosaur reacting when rapid paced reaction was necessary to try to get community transmission under control. It failed on that front. And frankly, uh, that became the issue around the second wave developing the way that it did. Yes, you know, hotel quarantine might have been the, the spark that lit it, but the, the spread of it in the community was a direct consequence of poor contact tracing with centralised, slow, reactive um, contact tracing. And we can probably blame the app for being a failure as well if we, you want to bring the feds in. But, but New South Wales doesn't necessarily have it all right. It might have it right in that sense. So it's been brilliant in its capacity to be agile and fast in response to try to control the spread of the virus within the community. But the danger for New South Wales is its attitudinal position on lockdowns versus Dan Andrews in Victoria. They might cause a lot of economic harm, but the big benefit of the way that Dan Andrews was prepared to act rapidly and decisively uh, in that very autocratic style and move very swiftly to stage three and then stage four lockdowns 
that is something that having not controlled the spread of the virus in the community was able to quickly bring it back under control not as quick as some would like, but nonetheless bring it back under control. And the numbers speak to that. The danger in New South Wales is, yes, your contact tracing is brilliant, and hopefully that stops community transmission getting to a point where you even need lockdowns. But if it does get out of control, as it can, because we know how good this virus is, no matter how good contact tracing is, if that happens, Hugh, the problem in New South Wales is that its attitude and the Premier's attitude towards lockdowns could see them land in a situation where the best contact tracing in the world ain't going to control this thing. If you leave lockdowns too late, bang, it's out of control. And so it's really interesting that Dan Andrews has some of what you need to fight the virus, that is a swiftness to lockdown, but it's New South Wales that has the other part of what you need to try to stop it getting to that, which is the quality contact tracing and agile processes. They don't all have it their own way. I just hope, as I'm sure you do, as two people living in New South Wales, that New South Wales doesn't get to that point where their stubbornness as an anti-lockdown phenomenon, which extends from Scott Morrison, leads to a situation where everything ultimately does get out of control. True enough. Let's take a quick break, Peter. Talk to you in just a moment. So you've just watched Bachelor in Paradise and you're ready to watch Lockie find love on The Bachelor, but that's not enough, is it? No, you need me, Osha, and you need you, Alicia, right? Oh, that's what they need, Osha. We are here to discuss the new season of The Bachelor with our gorgeous Bachelor, Lockie. Isn't he lovely? We're watching every episode together. We're talking through each episode together and we're offering insights that no one can really give. I'm fascinated to find out what it's like to actually be in the mansion from you. I am fascinated to know what it is like being the host of The Bachelor. I've already given away a little too much about how we actually make the show but you can hear all that on the reality bite which is uh, our brand new podcast where we talk you through each episode of the bachelor each week the reality bite cocktails and roses get it where you get your podcasts welcome back this is the professor and the hack we're into episode 69 and uh we're less than two months away from the u.s election we're less than one month away now from the federal budget pvo uh, mm. and this is the one in which we really get to see that not just the scale of the damage and the assumptions about future uh, damage, but also what the government plans to do about it, where it plans to put money. And we're getting a few leaks, a few suggestions as to how they plan to do it. And the word infrastructure is going to ring around the walls uh, for the next few weeks. Well, I, I, look, I want to hear your view on, on how you think they should do that. But just a very quick one from me. Could they have been any more annoying in organising the budget in the middle of school holidays? I mean, I'm sorry, but it comes right in the guts of school holidays. And I know they've delayed it and that's all. You're a, you're a snowflake, PVO. You're a but snowflake. But like, what the hell? What the hell? Like, there, the was, there was a generation that went through the Great Depression and the Second World War <laughs> and they didn't sit down and say, well, it's a bit inconvenient, Mr. Hitler. It's going to interfere with oh, my school holidays. Talking to my wife about, you know, what we were or weren't going to do is, you know, the ability to travel only slightly ticks upward uh, during this hellish year of 2020. And it's like, oh, sorry, darling, I'm going to be down in Canberra for the budget for one of the two weeks of the school holiday. I mean, I, I'm actually, I mean, look, I'm, I'm sort of half in jest here, but I'm actually surprised, frankly, that the politicians didn't work around that because they do normally look at that kind of thing because they don't want to be there uh, in the midst of school holidays uh, for their own selfish reasons. But anyway, uh, that, that, that's by the by. Hugh, infrastructure spending, it looks like they're going to be spending up big in this budget. Have we left the days behind us where the idea of um, fiscal conservatism uh, matters for any side of politics now? 
Well, I mean, the argument goes is that infrastructure spending is an investment in the future because what it means is that it increases productivity. Mm. It's yep. a big capital cost. Uh, it, in, it creates construction uh, jobs, which are, there's, there's, there's more upside in construction jobs and say in mining and other sorts of things. The big concern that I have with it is that the job losses that have happened so far have weighted overwhelmingly disproportionately on the young, but also on women. And yeah. infrastructure spending is fine. It tends to hire men and uh, nothing wrong with giving men jobs, but it is not of itself the answer to the employment crisis that's been thrown up uh, by you know, this COVID and all its economic mm. damage. And I don't see a lot of acknowledgement of that in the language coming from the government. And, you know, they surely must be aware of it. Uh, do they not care about women have lost their jobs? Is that unimportant to a conservative government? They certainly don't want it to be seen or perceived as unimportant to them because that will peeve a lot of people. And um, I think they're a, little, they're a little lost, aren't they? They're, they're lost at what to do beyond something like infrastructure spending, which almost has what I would call the unintended consequence of favouring men over women in terms of employment. Yeah, I mean, th that is a consequence of it. It is because it is a gendered area of, uh, of employment. Um, mm. But the thing about it is, is that if you want to go to where uh, women tend to be employed, and this is, we do live in a gendered world, 70% of people live work in workplaces when in fact people went to their workplaces where they saw predominantly people of their own gender whether it's male dominated industries female dominated industries and the female dominated industries tend to be in the ones which are funded by government so whether it's teaching nursing um you know childcare, uh, the caring professions etc they're obviously in business i'm not putting limits on it but but there are gendered workplaces and it's in some ways, easy to say, look, we'll build, we'll build bridges across the desert to Perth um, and employ all these people and spend all this money and it'll all be good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It looks good. It it's, gives the government something to talk about. It may have some value. I'm joking about taking bridges across the desert, of course, but it's all those other major projects. They also set up a, a nation for the next 60 years in theory about, so that it's got the ports and the rail and the, and the, the roads, et cetera, et cetera. But again, it doesn't necessarily, certainly of itself, is not an answer to the unemployment crisis, which for people where they live, this is not an economic crisis, it's a job crisis, you know, for most of them. So how they resolve that will be interesting to see. Yeah, and I mean, you know, this is where Labor and the government have quite different philosophies on what should happen from here as well when it comes to how to address the jobs crisis. So Labor is very strongly running on this argument that uh, job keepers should have gone further um, and extended more broadly and perhaps been drawn out for longer uh, with the primary aim of keeping people off job seeker. In other words, joining the unemployment queues. Their argument is the more people that stayed on job keeper supporting businesses, therefore to keep them in employment, uh, including casuals, the more chance there is that these people don't ever end up on the unemployment queues. And their argument being that when you end up on the unemployment queue, it might take you a couple of weeks or a couple of months to get on it, but then it will take you a couple of months to a couple of years to get off it. In other words, you want to try to do everything you can to avoid unemployment rising because it always, it spikes north, but then it comes down 
um, in, in, you know, in a much more horizontal like fashion. So uh, that may, I think that that is true. We know that historically with past recessions and economic downturns, the interesting thing though, that does differentiate this from past economic downturns, which is where the government lands. And I I don't really take a side on this because I can see both points. Their argument is that, well, that might be true. And Josh Frydenberg has conceded that about unemployment, but he believes and they believe that, the long-term stifling impact on the economy of propping up businesses that have perhaps become unviable or creating disincentives for people to return to normal work practices or even just the disrupting factor of it on the economy's natural ability to evolve become the greater evil uh, in the contest. Now, that's a hard sell, I think, um, if people are buying what Labor's offering, but to buy what Labor's offering they need to believe that Labor are better economic managers or at least more compassionate economic managers. And, and that comes back to the thing that we've talked about time and time again, doesn't it, about whether they can actually win that debate. Indeed. We, we're nearly out of time, but I do recall when Xi Jinping came to the Australian parliament, the, the Chinese leader, in a time of sunshine, you'd have to say, in the relationship between our two countries, the free trade agreement being negotiated. And this was a time of, it seemed... Uh, almost limitless friendship with our biggest trading partner. We've seen in recent days the limits on that. The Australians, according to the Smart Traveller website put out by DFAT, are warned, do not travel to China. Among the risks perceived there is arbitrary detention. That has existed now for some time. It was reaffirmed by the Foreign Minister Maurice Payne in recent days as those two Australian journalists, Mike Smith and Bill Bertels, fled China after being pulled in for questioning after the midnight knock on the door. Uh, All of it sinister. Um, Mm. What is our relationship going to be? It seems as if they're still willing to buy our goods. So uh, do the Chinese put down a bamboo curtain, say, you know, put up the hand uh, and say, look, just keep shoveling us your gear. We'll keep buying it. We want nothing else to do with you. Um, is that how we're going to be with China? I don't know. It's, com- it's so complicated, isn't it? I mean, the bottom line is they want what we're offering them as exports and they're not going to, I don't see them punishing us uh, to the detriment of themselves. China's not the kind of joint when it comes to the importance of those exports that are for them, their imports that are going to cut their nose off despite their face. However, if there are like-for-like comparisons, which there often are with a lot of these resources, then I can see it becoming part of the broader discussion. Uh, so it's, you know, it'll, it'll be a threat, potentially, uh, and we've seen some retaliatory action on the edges, I would argue. But at its core, um, the Chinese are incredibly pragmatic, culturally speaking, uh, and they want to continue to take what we're offering them. But it doesn't look like it's going to be much more than that at the moment. And, and that goes between the West and all Western countries at the moment in China, doesn't it? I mean, kicking out foreign journalists, a visa ban on US journalists, one for us can't be far behind. These are the last two Australian correspondents that have now returned home. Uh, we've got a, a Chinese national and Australian citizen, uh, you know, under arrest. And I think she might've now been charged as well. I mean, it's just, uh, these are all really worrying signs. Uh, this, put it this way, China certainly you ain't moving towards democracy uh, in any way, shape or form, which by the way, and maybe this is our parting point, that was what Tony Abbott predicted would happen uh, when he had the Chinese president here in Australia uh, and he was uh, extolling the greatness of his speech to the Australian parliament 
uh, about embracing democracy. You described it as a world first historical moment, not actually having used Google, which of course is not something many people understand or know how to use, uh, to realize that that is a complete, pardon my French, horseshit and showed his entire lack of understanding uh, about both Chinese rhetoric uh, as well as the reality of what they mean by their 50 year plan moving forward. But anyway, uh, that's another Tony Abbottism. Uh, he's now going to be spruiking trade for the UK, isn't he? So um, good luck to the UK on that. They've got a, a, a man of wisdom, certainly when it comes to China. Sure. I mean, uh, my concern about China is it's going to remain a huge part of Australia's life as a nation. Uh, in the decades ahead, all through my lifetime, what's left of it uh, mm. for sure, and through my children's as well. And what I see emerging there is an increasingly repressive regime, uh, increasingly uh, intolerant of any divergent divergence from official thought, both by its own citizenry, but also by anyone who goes there. Uh, their grip over Hong Kong is more and more tight and repressive. And I think it is a bad, bad result for uh, humanity in general, that we're seeing this from a country that just a few years ago uh, was always going to be still led by the Communist Party, but that was genuinely interested in engaging on a whole bunch of levels, people to people levels with the rest of the world. And you do wonder as you see university struggle across Australia, um, is there going to be an impact on Chinese students? Will they ever come back in the same numbers? Um, what controls might be put on them? Uh, will there be the level of trust and, and welcome to those Chinese students? Uh, I think we're in a flex, uh, flexation point um, yeah. going on in front of us, and it's not pretty. No, and I look, the only, the only um, attempt at glass half full in between all of that, which is very limited, let me be clear, is that, and, and adding to the, the woes before I get to that, you know, everything you say, I agree with you. And it's happening, obviously, as China becomes a much more powerful figure internationally at the same time that the United States is seemingly in what may well be a terminal decline, irrespective of who wins the US presidency. All of that is transpiring. The only glass half full um, about China is that whilst it likes to impose its influence uh, globally in, in all sorts of untoward ways, whilst it falls into all the traps that you're talking about, uh, there are two little things. You know, One is the, the hope. Uh, the belief that, you know, the more you suppress democratic ideals and with that, to some extent, capitalism, although they have been disconnected recently, particularly with China, that that can create uprisings of resistance. And we will see if that happens as it manifests over time. But probably the, the most heartening thing for me about China compared to historical empires is they aren't, well, other than wanting to develop their kingdom uh, in its traditional sense, they aren't expansionist well, they have never been expansionist in a territorial sense, really, the way that most empires are. They're more expansionist. Tell that to the people influence. of Tibet. Tell that oh, no, no, but, but, but they, sail you know, a ship you know, through the South China Sea. But, but you know yeah, what they're not, like, yeah, they're, the they're not, they're not Nazis. And the Spratleys and Hong Kong, they, they sort of see that as, 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 as what is and always should have been China. Uh, they're, not, they're, they're not the kind of power that's likely to be an imperial power that you know, like the, gets like the, the warships going land. and yeah, they, they, they don't tend to be like that. And fingers crossed they don't become that, of course. But that, that doesn't make them any less concerning, of course, does it with the way that they exude, they, they wield their influence into Africa or arm twist economically uh, at other organisations. It's, it's, it's deeply worrying. I'm just trying to be moderately positive on this 69th episode, Hugh, before we say goodbye. Lovely to see an optimist. PBO, <laughs> good to talk to you as always. See you, mate. Ciao.
You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.